you would take your Bibles now this morning and open, first of all, to the book of Ephesians, please. The book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1 down through verse 21 this morning as we begin our time in the Word of God together. This is what we read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead, even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Father, What a command to be imitators of You as Your dear children. At first our heart is excited by that and then we are at the same time terrified by that because we know that is impossible unless You come and unless You help us. Unless You give us Your Spirit. Unless You draw us through Christ. We cannot imitate You. But Father, we pray this morning that by Your Word, in Your Son, through Your Spirit, You would draw us to that and cause us not only to think, but to live and to speak that which is true, that which is lovely, that which is redemptive. Father, we live in a world that does not seek redemption. In fact, they mock it. We pray that we would imitate Your Son and imitate You anyway and speak it. Because this is the great need of the hour. It's always been the great need of any hour. But so much more now in our own time do we see this as as the reality, the great need. And we pray that You would help us. Help us to know You, to love You in such a way that causes us to see what is evil and wrong and contrary to who You are, and that we, by grace and with truth and with the authority of the Word of God, would expose it, that it might be repented of, and that those whom we care about would be saved from its impending wrath. So help us now, Lord, to think through these things. This morning we pray, Father, 
that You would be with our brothers in Canada, our brothers across the world as they stand and they faithfully proclaim on this Sunday biblical truth that could well land many of them in prison by this afternoon. And we pray that You would cause what we just sung to happen more and more. That the men of God would rise up. That the church of God would rise up with a swelling chorus of voices to proclaim what is true and right. To the everlasting benefit of all those who will believe. We pray this in Your Son's name. Last week I mentioned that there is the new reality, I've mentioned it this morning as well, that in Canada and even in places here in the United States like West Lafayette, Indiana, it's been tried in California in 2012, but there are new realities that are being faced by all of us in this new sexual revolution that has been thrust upon us, and it's not sudden. And if we think it's happened suddenly, then we just haven't been paying attention. This has been coming for quite some time, and now it is at some sort of an apex of a moment. And it seems to be the clamoring of the day, even for those who don't practice such lifestyles, that they are, as Romans 1 says, giving hearty approval to those who do practice them, to the point that our So much of our political realm, our leaders are engulfed in catering to this, passing laws that promote it and protect it over against that which really is the backbone and the blessing of any well-ordered society. The laws that are specifically have been passed in the previous days that have recently taken effect in Canada are banning what is known as conversion therapy. That is to suggest, assist, or aid in any way the conversion of someone who is involved in a homosexual, a transgender, or a gender dysphoric, etc., etc., lifestyle to help them out of that. Now, I want you to note that the hypocrisy and the insanity of this move is almost incomprehensible. It's supposed to provide safety and acceptance, etc., 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 and the reality is that it is doing the very opposite. It's opening up society to great condemnation and wrath before God. And that's why we should mourn this development. This is not helping them, this is harming them. This is not seeking to be loving to them. This is to further contribute to their downward spiral and ultimately to their damnation. We know statistically, it's not debatable, we know statistically that people caught up in these lifestyles are some of the most depressed, have some of the highest suicide rates, have a greater uh, aptitude for mental illness, than their counterparts in other parts of society. And the reality for us as Christians is that they are now attempting to force us into supporting such behavior by banning us from living out our own faith and Christian worldview, which calls us, in no uncertain terms, to preach the gospel and to call them to faith and repentance as well. They are telling us simply to be quiet, to ignore that, and to be disobedient to our Sovereign and our Lord Jesus Christ in trying to help these people. Notice that even the language they use is interesting to me, is conversion therapy. And as I mentioned in my short video I sent to you on Friday, that is a word that belongs to us. That's a word that belongs to the Gospel. Conversion is a part of God's redemptive work, and yet now it's been twisted to somehow be viewed as a negative in trying to help those trapped in these particular sinful lifestyles to abandon them by turning to Christ. They want to ban that which converts sinners into saints. 
that they want to ban the converting of the enemies of God into becoming the children of God. They want to ban the converting of those who are under judgment to become those who are under God's blessing. They want to ban the converting of the dead into the living. This is not loving. This is the height of hypocrisy and it is the height of incurring the judgment of God and the church of Jesus Christ must speak up and say so. Why? Because we're told to. Not only are we not to participate in the works of darkness, rather we are even to expose them. And to call them into account and to call them into right thinking and to call them to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Here's the issue, brothers and sisters, this morning. Satan himself is behind this. And Satan wants as many people as possible to remain in the state of judgment under God along with him. You realize that's the purpose, right? Satan knows he is doomed. Satan knows he has been judged already. And he knows that his final uh, sentence is coming close. And he is going to do everything he can to make sure as many people who bear the image of God go with him into that judgment. He doesn't care. The people who promote this stuff don't care. It is a harmful thing, not a helpful thing. Satan is perfectly content with deceiving the world to receiving like judgment with him and remain in that realm of the dead forever and ever. In other words, by silencing us these laws about God's created design and seeking to silence us in those arenas, they are trying to force the appearance that we agree with the lie being perpetrated. Let me say categorically, we do not agree with the lie. And the only way to not agree with the lie at this point, the way things are being written and constructed in society and in culture and in government and in politics is to speak up and say, no, we do not agree with the lie. We do agree with the life, and that is what we will preach. We are people of light, brothers and sisters. We are people of life. And it is sinful and it is reprehensible in the sight of God if we remain silent about that light and about that life. We must preach the truth. Because we love people trapped in these lifestyles. Because we resist the sexual revolution that is rebellion against God. We want to promote peace and joy, blessing and tranquility. And we can only do that when we call for the conversion of sinners. It doesn't matter what sin. We're all sinners. But when we call for the conversion of sinners to run to Christ, that is what we must do. And that is the only thing that will bring blessing and love and life and light. What's being thrust upon us isn't true. It isn't loving. It isn't safe. And it isn't sustainable. And let me just say as well, it is not settled as they would have you believe. It is not a settled thing. The LGBTQ uh, lifestyle is not a settled lifestyle. It's not. They are always coming up with new ways to uh, express their depraved nature. It's never the same. One, in fact, we're starting to see this now that, that even with the L, in, within the LGBTQ uh, arena, they're beginning to fight with each other. They're, they're trying to convert one another into their own particular perversion. Isn't it ironic that we are the only ones banned from trying to convert them to something? They can try to convert each other all day long into perversity, but the Christians, to call them to Christ, to forgiveness, to hope, to life, to truly what love is, we're banned from that kind of conversion. But they can convert one another back and forth. In fact, notice that when they do it, it's not called conversion, it's called transition. They know the truth. They're rejecting it. In fact, just this week, the church received an email, and, I, and I, I've, I've gotten these 
we get so much junk mail in the general office email boxes. I'm sure you do in some of your emails. And I've seen this sender, this group pop up before, and I just delete, 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 delete. And then it happened to this week, it just caught my eye. I don't even know what kind of organization it is, but they were offering a certification for our church to become a safe place and a, an affirming place for, are you ready? LGBTQIA2+. You know, and next week it'll be more alphabet soup. But it's never the same. There's always conversion happening. They're always pushing for uh, conversion to greater perversion. And that's just fine. Just don't convert us to the saving truth of Jesus Christ as the remedy for our sin. Because this is not sin. This is a lifestyle. We learned from the USA Today this past Monday that the science behind pedophilia has evolved. And it's really not what we thought it was. Translated, it's okay. So expect P to be added to the alphabet soup very soon. It's not really as bad as we think. It's not really what we think it is. And I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, let's, you know, John MacArthur has said recently that truth extends to being able to analyze reality. It's so true. Let's analyze reality for a moment. Notice how we've been groomed not to question science. Oh, this is, now the science says this new form of perversion is okay. Don't argue with what? Science. It's not science. It's perversion. There's nothing scientific about pedophilia. There's nothing scientific about any of this stuff. Science has been deified to become the final authority, but it is not the final authority. The God of science is the final authority. In fact, the God of science has spoken and said this, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That is settled science. There's chromosomal evidence to prove that settled science. But even if we didn't have the ability to prove it, it's proven because the one who creates life says it's created that way. God is the author of science. He is himself settled science. We don't need evolving science for that. It's settled by the creator. And this brings us to the real point of all of this, I think. Those who are forcing this upon us are denying science in order to deny God. They are not science provers, they are science deniers. You realize that we are living in such a rebellious and morally depraved and confused world that the very thing they say they are doing, they are not doing. The very thing they say they are not doing is the very thing they're doing. Have you noticed that? You're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. And it's really the opposite. It's almost like you can turn on the evening news and say, okay, what are they saying? Then the opposite is true. It's literally getting that to that point. Scripture told us it would be like that. Didn't they? Woe to you when you call evil good and good evil. So what's our response? What's our response? R.C. Sproul, before he passed away, Remarked that when the culture and the government has lost its conscience, it is the responsibility of the true church of Jesus Christ, not the institutionalized church, but the true church of Jesus Christ to be the voice and to be the conscience of truth and morality based upon the word of God. We're at that moment, brothers and sisters. It's time for us to stand up and to say what is true and say what is right and to be plain spoken people of the book. People who do not shy away from reality as it really is. Not to be ambiguous, not to try to nuance it to death, not to try to find clever ways to make ourselves feel like we said what God said, but yet not to really be understood in such a way that it would be offensive to those who heard it. Again, I saw that on full display this week in a clip that was 
circulating from the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Apologizing and nuancing to death and hiding under great ambiguity where the church really stands on this issue of homosexuality, LGBT, perversion, whatever it is. We must be plain spoken, kind, courageous, honest people about the truth. We don't have the luxury of doing anything less right now. We never have. We never will. We must. And there are two things that we must be plain spoken about. Not only about the sin, we must be plain spoken about the hope. You see, we would be just as reprehensible as those who are ambiguous and nuanced and hiding and all these kind of things to sit here and browbeat the issue and name the sin and rant and rave about that, but not offer the hope. We would be equally sinful. We must be plain spoken, not only about the sin, but about the hope for that sin. We must be people who strive to see conversion, not just exposing. And we ought to be broken and we ought to weep and we ought to plead with those who are engaged in this lifestyle not to simply call them out but to call them up to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, that is my purpose. I don't want to pastor a church and I don't want to be the type of Christian that simply has great enjoyment in pointing out error without pointing out truth the truth, and the hope of salvation. And we must be people who will do both. And so, (coughs) how do we respond to this moment of madness? If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, I want to quickly outline that for you because I want to go on and move into 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as well. And I know what you're thinking, Brian, you have trouble with one or two verses getting us out in an hour. What are we going to do with two different big passages? I'll try, I promise. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 1 through 21 that we read, let me outline that for you this morning. In verses 1 and 2, we find a standard of absolute morality, which is the Holy God Himself. Notice what He says, Therefore be imitators of God. Hey church, be an imitator of God. That is our absolute moral standard you've got to look like him we know we can't and so in verses three through five we find the second point here and that is that there is an absolute violation of god's holy and moral code this is a problem of sin that we all have verses six and seven there is absolute judgment upon all who violate god's moral code And then in verse 8, we find there is hope to be rescued out of this judgment for anyone who will repent and believe. For you were formerly darkness. You were formerly darkness. You used to be that, but you're not anymore. So there is good news to be had. And then in verses 9 through 17, we read that there is a new code of living, a new morality that is given to those who follow Christ. And here's what it looks like. You are light. You are goodness. You are righteousness. You are truth. You expose darkness rather than participating in it. You don't joke about it. You don't make light of it. You're not entertained by it. You know, I think that's one reason some of you have said to me, what is wrong with churches today? Why do churches not take a stand anymore. I'll tell you why I think that is in part, at least. I think for too long, the church, from the pulpit to the pew, has been so entertained by the perversion that Paul speaks about that it doesn't phase us anymore. We've watched it on TV. We've supported it in movies. We've listened to it in the music of pop culture. We have imbibed in it to the point where it's like, it's no big deal. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to, okay, I'm against that. And that's about as far as you get. The church has become so much like the world that it sees no reason to stand up to the world. God help us. 
to be discerning in what we pump into our minds because eventually it will affect you. And I think that's, that, that is where Paul is at. Don't laugh about it. Don't tell jokes about it. Don't participate in it. It will defile your mind. Rather, we are to expose these things and we are to call the church to follow Christ instead. And in doing that, we will have the platform and the authority to call those who are engaged in those sins to Christ as well. So how do we then live? I want to just give you two points. At least there's not three. Two points this morning. Number one, establish the absolute basis of what is at stake. As, as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, as Christians who want to be faithful, who want to be helpful to people trapped in these lifestyles, we must first establish the basis of what is at stake. The totality of all that Paul has just said in Ephesians chapter 5, and I wish we had time to take this apart in greater detail, but the totality of what he says here comprises the absolute basis of reality, not only for the Christian, but for the non-Christian as well. In other words, we must tell the world lovingly that they are held to the same morality and the same standard that we are, and that is the standard of God's holiness. There is no, well, that's your morality, my morality is different. My morality allows me to continue in sin this way. That's your truth. That's your morality. This is mine. There is no such thing. There is only God's morality. He is the one who alone matters. There is the reality of God's standard and every single human being must adhere to that or face the consequences. It is the morality of science. By creation. The standard that is set by creation. There is no morality. Let me just, in the spirit of trying to be helpful, let me just point out an example to you. There's been great debate in Christian circles, particularly Christian counseling circles, over the last couple of years, and it came up again this week in a conversation with a fellow pastor who was trying to figure out how to word something. And so we had a discussion about that. And that is what has been really, I think, pushed on the church as a sort of compromise from the homosexual community. And that is to say this, that it is okay to be attracted to that lifestyle so long as you don't practice the lifestyle. Same-sex attraction is fine, but just remain celibate. That has been pushed more than I could say. It's been pushed probably through many of the platforms that you have read, authors that you know are starting to buy into that at an alarming, I think, an increasing rate. But here's the problem with that. There's no righteous fulfillment of that desire and attraction. God did not create Adam and Eve with LGBT tendencies or attractions. That is a product of the fall, therefore it is sinful. What he did create them with were normal heterosexual attractions. Now, there are boundaries that those must be kept within the arena of marriage, but those attractions that everybody is born with and develop at some point in your adolescent years, those things have a righteous end to them. But the LGBTQIA2+, whatever it's going to be tomorrow, has no righteous end to it. Therefore, we as Christians cannot say, hey, listen, there's a new morality in town. It's okay for you to have those attractions. No. Why? Because they are not the morality of science as given in creation itself. God never gave the possibility of those things. 
God never created the possibility of those things. And whatever God did not create and God did not give in Genesis 1 and 2 is a direct result of the fall. It doesn't matter what arena it's in. And we need to think about those things and understand what is at stake. And what is at stake in part is a rejection of God by a rejection of His created order. Be imitators of God. Be held to that moral standard regardless of what the temptation or the sin is. To go back to His purpose in creation. And so for the believer, there's no excuse for participating in, condoning, being, being ambiguous about the absolute holiness of God. There's no excuse. We're, I believe, cowards if we don't. We're either cowards or we're complicit. One of the two. We must be clear about what's at stake so that we can be clear about the hope for the solution for this reason we read in ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 christ also loved you and gave himself up for you as your substitute as your uh, penalty as your acceptable sacrifice before the father christ gave himself up for you to cleanse you from these things not to find a way for you to flirt with them or to be silent about them, or to condone them. That's not why Jesus died. The church cannot be silent, because Jesus Christ did not die for silence. He died for a message to be proclaimed. Why? Why? Why, Paul? Verse 5, because you know this. That no immoral person, no impure person, no covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And if you're not in the kingdom of Christ and God, you are in the kingdom of Satan and hell. That's why we're concerned. Paul intentionally paints with a broad brush here uh, to cover everyone. Immoral, impure, covetous. That's everybody. We're all there at some level and in some way. Every sin is named in those categories. But just because a sin is particularly in vogue at any one cultural moment as the enlightened and evolved and progressive lifestyle scientific fad says it is, does not give it a pass for Christians. It doesn't matter who says it's okay it doesn't matter who tries to soften it it doesn't matter we have to say the same things that god says about it for all time the moral absolute is the same the moral science of a perfect creator is unchanged and the reality is this brothers and sisters if we don't establish that moral basis that moral norm of imitating god and holding to the standard that is god himself then there is judgment you are either at peace with the king or you are at war with the king and you will inherit upon yourself all the judgment and wrath of that kingdom think about that for a moment when you go against a king and he deploys his army against you, it's not just him out there fighting you. It is every resource at his disposal. And when we go against God, we incur not only the wrath of God, but the entirety of the wrath and the opposition of the kingdom of God itself, which is substantial. We must establish what is at stake, and that's what's at stake. If we do not speak up, there are men and women, and now boys and girls, who will not hear of the hope that is in Christ. And they will be chained to this terrible, damning lifestyle and way of thinking that will lead only to their destruction. If you love people, you will not let that happen to them. It is not loving to go along with whatever. That is absolutely the most hateful thing you could do to somebody. Not to tell them the truth. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Do you hear that? There's hope. There were people in the church in Corinth who absolutely fit every one of these categories. And Paul says, but you know what God did for you, don't you? He brought you out and put your feet upon a firm place, a a blessed place. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let's say it in our Cultural moments vernacular, you were converted from darkness to light, from death to life, from tragedy to blessing. The cultural moment and the feel of the culture is largely okay with naming some of these sins as unacceptable. Have you noticed that? Go back to that list. Second Corinthians, well, let's see, we have fornicators. No, don't talk about that. Idolaters, don't talk about that. Adulterers, don't talk about that. Effeminate, don't talk about that. Homosexuals, don't talk about that. Thieves, yeah, we'll stand up and say that. Don't take what's mine. Drunkards, uh, if you affect my life, then yeah, you can't do that. Uh, Swindlers, yeah, throw them in jail. Those greedy corporate bankers. I mean, we're okay with Bernie Madoff, right? Getting his. But don't touch the other thing. But, if that's wrong, so is that. Anything that violates the breach of God's holy standard is wrong, and we must say so. That's what's at stake. All of these things are wrong. All of these things require conversion, which includes the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate the homosexuals. In fact, I think things have progressed so much in our day and age that Paul probably could not imagine. With the advance in science has come advance in ways to defy God. Some of the surgeries of things that are performed today, it would have killed people in Paul's day. But yet it's offered to our children, even without parental consent. God will judge these along with every sort of immoral behavior or thing that is contrary to His nature. But you and I, brothers and sisters, must stand and extend the truth to these people in love. That these sins, these particular gross sexual sins are in a class of their own. You know, there are sins that affect just us. There are sins that affect others to some degree. And then there are sins that affect a great or greater number of people. And that's the class of these sexual sins wrapped up in the sexual revolution being thrown in our face. They're not just moral breaches of God's holy code. They are defiance of God's created order. Quite literally, they are anti-nature and anti-science. What do you mean by that? They defy everything about the way God created natural order. But hey, that's okay, right? We're Darwinian. We believe the world evolved. There is no God. Notice how we've been set up for this? If there's no God, and if everything just evolved, then who's to set the moral standard? You can do whatever you want to nature and science and whatever. But when God is removed, they are defying natural order. They're defying God. They are not in these lifestyles, in the LGBTQ paradigm. They are not created as co-equals, homosexual behavior and other things. They are not co-equals and completers of the natural design and desires God created in men and women. It does not work. They cannot produce anything. 
that is life-giving so that human existence and good is furthered by the procreation of the human race. They cannot do that. They produce only pain, only disfigurement, only disease, and ultimately the extinction of the human race if they get their way. Do you realize what would happen if we gave way to everything that they wanted? The human race would be extinct in one generation. This group hates men, so no men, which means no babies. This group says, yes, we want this. We want uh, babies, but we don't want men to have the babies. Therefore, we'll do it in a science laboratory. Except it doesn't really work. And the ones that do conceive will just kill the babies. So that there's no propagation of human life. How is that loving? How is that true? How is that good? There's no righteous fulfillment for these perverse desires. Only sticking to God's created order. It's so tragic. It's so sad so devastating everything that god says and by virtue what god creates in his word in genesis flows from who he is it is therefore perfect god created male and female perfectly god created women for man and man for woman to mean marriage and the right expression of the desires god made that's perfect god created the fruit of physical union and pleasure and offspring and that's perfect God is absolutely complex, beauteous, and glorious in who He is, and that is what He has done, and that is what we are rejecting. God created things perfectly as it needed to be, as it had to be, and yet it took a lie to destroy that beauty that truth created. And it's still a lie that's doing the same thing today. It's a lie. You realize everything about this lifestyle is a lie, brothers and sisters. Everything. There's no truth in it at all. It is all a lie. It is unnatural because it is a lie. It is anti-science and anti-creation because it's a lie. And we as Christians must expose that. The goal is to shut God out. To put a veil over God so that nobody can see Him. To shut him away once and for all. By attacking the most fundamental building block of human society. Have you noticed that our society. Jeffrey, by the way, would you click the air on? It's getting a little bit. It's it's not coming on. Well, we had heating and air conditioning issues yesterday. So maybe that's why. Um, Have you noticed that our society is not only obsessed with the perversion but with things like transhumanism, artificial intelligence, science perversion, trying to create life without God's way of creating life. Have you noticed that? It's everywhere. We want a world that can exist only as God has created it, but we don't want the God who created it. And that's where we're at. That's what we have are now encountering. We, we are encountering lies that want... The blessings, but not the God who bestows the blessings. And we need to expose that. They want to defame the goodness of what God has done. They want to deconstruct what God has done so that chaos and death will follow. And then they want to dethrone God and make themselves God. So how do we as Christians respond? Going to have to fast forward here. We must not only establish the reality of the problem, I think we get that, but we've got to establish the hope and the only answer for these people trapped in these lifestyles. I want you to go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let me just read very quickly verses 1 through 12. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, 
perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though, and here's where it really gets interesting. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, what letter? 1 Corinthians. I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. What does he mean? For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Paul hated that he had to hurt them, but he had to say what needed to be said. And then look at verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. You see, we're not alone in facing this moment of cultural upheaval, of sexual rebellion and revolution. Paul faced it too. In fact, we don't have time to get into it, but in the letter to the 1 Corinthians, you can actually probably reconstruct what the original letter looked like to Paul. Paul, marked urgent, SOS, we are in trouble. Here's the issues in the church. Go look at what Paul addresses and you can figure out what they must have said. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have an individual living in an incestuous relationship. It was so immoral and so grotesque. Paul says to the Corinthians, shame on you, not even the pagans do that kind of stuff. What do they do? They have to put him out of the church. And Paul says, here's the deal. Don't even eat with them. Don't have any communication with them except to evangelize them. And and a myriad of other issues that Paul has to come down very hard on. And it breaks their heart and it makes them sorrowful. But notice why Paul did it. To bring them to the point of repentance that leads to salvation. Corey and I had a good discussion Friday I said, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't just be, become the people who just point out everything that's wrong. There are individuals that make their mark and make their living and make their status by doing that. They just they call out what's wrong constantly. Just hammering it constantly. But you know, it's not only what's wrong that we must proclaim, it's what's right. And what is right is this, that yes, that is sinful, but Christ saves sinners. You know how Paul ended 1 Corinthians? By pointing them to the resurrection. By pointing them to the hope that Christ changes everything, including death itself. So much so that when they read that, some of them repented and were saved. They were, are you watching? Converted. So that when Paul writes his second letters, he says, it broke my heart to have to say that to you, but I am glad that I said it because it produced in you a sorrow that led to repentance. I don't want to beat up on anyone who is LGBTQIA2+. I want to tell them the truth that will bring about a godly sorrow that will lead them to salvation and a rescue from their sin. 
And if that is not your heart in being upset about the cultural moment, Christian, you need to repent. If you just get mad about what they're doing in the government, in the schools, and the this and the that, and that's all it goes to for you is making you mad, repent. Because Paul's example, the example of Jesus, would never be just to unmask the sin, but to provide the remedy for sin. And that is to say, we want you to repent and come to Jesus to be cleansed of your sin. And by the way, it can happen. How do we know it happens? Because Paul says, such were some of you. You're not like that anymore. You're not like that anymore. And what a glorious testimony every year when i go to the shepherds conference in march there's a man at grace community church who i've gotten to be friends with a little bit and so i always enjoy seeing him he always works in the bookstore no comments please if you've seen my office you know i've been to that bookstore but I always enjoy talking to him, and he shared his testimony with me. He was a practicing homosexual. And he was raised in church, and the church said, you know, that's antithetical to Christianity. You need to repent. No, I'm not repenting. No, I'm not repenting. No, I'm not repenting. Then we're putting you out of the church. He said, you know, that was what God used to get my attention. He said, that is what eventually brought me to faith in Christ because that church had the courage to stand up to me about my sin and to show me to the Savior. And it broke me and it hurt and it was painful, but God saved me through that. And he's got a wonderful testimony and a wonderful life now that he lives free from all of that baggage. God saved him out. We need to have the heart of Paul. We, we want you to repent. We want you to come to Christ. Don't you know that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he's probably sitting there on more than one line thinking, they are never going to speak to me again. If I say this, it's over. They will hate my guts. But he says, I'm going to say it anyway. Not because I'm angry at them, but because I love them and because it will break them. And maybe God will use that and bring them to salvation. And he was right. Will we be right? You see, we can't just shut up. We can't say, well, Bill C4 or when it comes to the United States, well, SB or HB, whatever, criminalizes saying that that is wrong. Well, I guess the test will be, number one, how much do you love God? How much do you love the people? Because if you love God and you love them, you'll say it anyway. Paul did. Paul did. He was honest with them. We are duty bound to proclaim this, brothers and sisters, and we must proclaim the goodness of God in sexuality, in in creation, and in redemption. They're not only qualified to receive His judgment, they're also qualified to receive His forgiveness. We must proclaim that. Romans chapter 10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. You want to make a bunch of hopeful people preach Christ. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no sin that cannot call upon the name of the Lord and experience the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. No sin. None. And if we think there is, then maybe we have never tasted that forgiveness. What hope? What hope there is for this movement and this lifestyle. How tragic it is. How very like Satan it is to cut them off from hope. By silencing those who have the hope. But like Paul says to Timothy, like John Bunyan said in prison, I may be bound, but the word of God will never be bound. We will preach wherever 
whenever, to whomever. So that they might experience a repentance that leads to salvation. It was a right kind of sorrow. Notice how Paul makes that distinction in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There, there are two kinds of sorrows. Do you see that? There's a worldly sorrow that leads to death, and there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life. You know the world's a really sad place. Have you noticed that? It's really obvious today, isn't it? The world is a very broken, heartbreaking, sad place. And unless we preach Christ to them, they'll only have sorrow that continues to break their heart until they die. We must preach a repentance that leads to life. Joy, forgiveness, wholeness. The right kind of sorrow is produced when we speak up. The world are not a people at peace with themselves, particularly the LGBT community. Have you ever noticed there's no joy in celebrating even in their supposed transitions? There's no joy in them. What are they always out doing? Yelling at the cameras, screaming about this or that, they're angry all the time. It's not a satisfying end, is it? Let's give them real peace. Let's give them something to really celebrate. To be content in, to be joyous in. And that is sorrow produced by the truth that leads them to repentance. John MacArthur says it this way, human sorrow is unsanctified remorse, has no redemptive capability. It is nothing more than the wounded pride getting caught in a sin and having one's lust go unfulfilled. That's what worldly sorrow is. But godly sorrow leads us to repent, to turn away from that which is the source of the sorrow and to the one who can forgive the source of that sorrow. I'm so glad Paul preached to the Corinthians, aren't you? Glad he wrote that letter to them. We still have it. And our hope is what? Jesus Christ, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again for us. So that Paul can close in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, say, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no lifestyle, no sin, no grave. No hell that can separate us from the victory of Jesus Christ. Why do we, as Bible-believing Christians, oppose any attempt to silence us? Because we understand there are eternal souls at stake. Why will we oppose any such legislation and preach even if it's passed? Because eternal souls are at stake. We care enough to expose the lies. We care enough to expose the truth that will save. We expose and proclaim for the eternal glory of Christ and the good of sinners whom He will convert into saints. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. It must begin when we pray. Evangelism doesn't start when we open our mouths and start trying to lead people through the Scripture. Evangelism starts when we pray that the Lord of the harvest would bring fruit. When we pray that God would open the ears and the hearts and the minds of sinners to hear, that's when it starts. Let us start the work of conversion now by praying for those we know trapped in these lifestyles. Let us begin the work of conversion by praying for our nation that God would give ears to hear. Let us begin the work of conversion by committing ourselves to loving Christ so much that we want to see Him produce His own likeness in them. By preaching the hope that they too can have in Him. Preach it. Preach it. Don't stop. Don't be ashamed. Don't be intimidated. And when they throw you in jail, preach it there too. Because there will be people there who need it as much as people on the streets. Preach Christ. Call for 
a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And I can promise you this. Here's what they don't count on. They think that human government is the be-all and end-all. That they decree it not to be so, then it won't be so. But they forget that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. They forget that he's the one that opened an empty tomb and rose from the dead and holds the power and the keys of death and hell. They forget that. And they forget that he is also the one who said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men, all sorts of men. Greek, Jew, male, female. Young, old, rich, poor homosexual, heterosexual, it doesn't matter. I will draw all men. If I am lifted up, lift up Christ. He's their hope. He's our hope. No bill will silence that. If we really believe that these things are true. Let's pray. Father, help us in our current moment of insanity and chaos that has taken lodging and root at the very core of humanity and creation. That is our our own being created male and female. But we know, Lord Jesus, You are not affected by these things. You are not deterred by these things. Your Gospel will win, but Your people must rise up in obedience to You and preach and proclaim the truth. May we be faithful to point out what is at stake and may we be faithful to point out what can be, that both the sin and the hope, so that we would have the joy of looking at people on our deathbed and saying, but such were some of you, but I've seen Jesus change you. May that be true. Help us, Lord, to be undeterred and to be faithful. To be filled with the confidence that You save sinners of all stripes, of all kinds. You saved us. You'll save them. So help us to be faithful in believing that and proclaiming that. In Jesus' name we pray.